Welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, from context comes an understanding of everything. Today's guest, well-known Central Ohio journalist, politician, and author Michael Curtin, seems to have understood that from his early days as a reporter to his time as a legislator. In our interview, Mike discusses his career, the future of journalism, the importance of compromise, and how we view issues largely depends on the vantage point with which we view them. Our conversation provides an understanding that context is not just about seeing the bigger picture, it's about appreciating the stories, decisions, and efforts that create that picture. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down here with Mike Curtin, the former president and COO and vice chairman of the Dispatch Printing Company, also former state rep in former District 17, lifelong Columbus resident. Mike, how are you, sir? Good, Tim. Thanks for having me in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you give us sort of the 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 elevator pitch is, isn't even going to be short for your background, but talk quickly through sort of your career and then we'll we'll go back a couple of times. Well, I grew up in Columbus. Uh, my parents sent their five kids through Catholic schools. So I went through 12 years of Catholic schools at St. Christopher Elementary and Bishop Waterson High School on to Ohio State. Um, and uh, majored in journalism uh, at Ohio State, came out of Ohio State in 1973. But prior to that, I'd won an internship at the dispatch. So while I was finishing up my studies at Ohio State, I got my foot in the door, the classic foot in the door at the dispatch uh, in the summer of 73. So when I graduated in December of 73, there was a job waiting for me because my internship went well. So for the next 38 years, I went through the steps at the dispatch General assignment, city hall, county government, state government, became the paper's chief political writer, and then I became an executive. I was editor and then uh, uh, associate publisher, president, chief operating officer, and vice chairman of the board. But my wheelhouse, if you will, uh, was uh, politics, local and state government, local and state politics, public policy, electoral politics. That's what I loved. Uh, doing, I like to think I did it well. It um, it matters, mm-hmm. you know. These these public policy issues at the local and state level matter. I, I realized how much they mattered when I was at Ohio State in the tumultuous late '60s and early '70s. Yeah, uh, you know, the campus was uh, uh, you know a wonderful place to be a student journalist at that time. I fell in love with uh, what journalism is, and the Dispatch gave me a wonderful 38 years to do it. When newspapers were still king. Yeah. And you, I mean, you were there when you could drive 15th all the way to the Oval, correct? Pretty much. Okay. The West Campus was just opening up. Okay. You know, the, the, there were two buildings on the West Campus, uh, and uh, the dis, the journalism school was relocated from uh, Neal and 17th, or Neal and 15th, I think it was, Okay. Uh, to West Campus. Uh, there was Wright Meyer Hall and Beavis Hall, and... Um, you look at West Campus now, and it's a, a small city, as you know. Yeah. But uh, so on my my freshman year was on main campus 
But then after that, uh, I was on West Campus. But going back and forth, of course. And um, the, the Lantern was a marvelous laboratory. Uh, so I was able to cover um, trials of people on trial like Charles Ross, um, you know, who was, uh, was charged, you know, with uh, fomenting unrest on campus. Okay. And uh, so I was able to cover his federal trial, for example, at the courthouse. I was able to cover the emerging black studies department, a brand new department at, uh, at Ohio State, and be on the cutting edge of, you know, cultural, racial, societal change. And uh, the excitement of doing that and trying to do it well, you know, never left me. And after, just to get fully encapsulated, after your time at the dispatch, you decided to, you jokingly referred to it as grad school before uh, we started recording, but you decided to run for uh, to a state rep seat. Yeah, so I, I had left the dispatch um, at the end of 2011. Mm-hmm. And uh, 2011 just happened to be the year that new districts had to be drawn for the 2012, um, you know, legislative races, Mm -hmm. as they are every 10 years following the federal census. And lo and behold, uh, a new House district was drawn around, you know, uh, where I live. And I thought, you know, and I was somewhat self-conscious about never going back to grad school, never getting a a degree beyond my bachelor's in journalism. And uh, I thought about law school. I thought about other things along the way, but the timing was never right. I was a very busy journalist. Uh, my wife and I were raising two kids. Um, and uh, so I, I truly did analogize a, a run for the legislature and serving, if I won, mm-hmm. to a sort of a grad school experience because I knew I would learn a lot. Yeah. Because the legislature deals with every issue under the sun from A to Z. And I was a policy wonk, uh, you know, but somebody who seriously studied uh, local and state public policy. And, and so I thought, I might enjoy this. And I did. I, I really enjoyed running uh, twice and serving for uh, four years, but um, four years was enough for me. But decided not, I mean, it was term limited at that time, right? You had the opportunity to run for... I could have run for two more terms for, two to- more. for a total of eight years. Okay. But I, uh, I cashed it in after, after two and decided that I wanted a little more free time. And, I, and we were in the minority. Democrats, I, yeah. was, I was a Democrat. Democrats were in the minority. So it's not like you're driving the train, the policy train. Um, and I had other things I wanted to do. Uh, a little more free time, as I mentioned to you before we went on the air. Yeah. Uh, I'm an umpire. I've been umpiring uh, baseball and fast pitch softball for 22 years uh, at the high school and Division three college level. And uh, I just wanted a little more free time while I still had my health to... Uh, you know, do things that were, were fun and, and that sustained me. Absolutely. Talk through sort of your, your time at the dispatch and your progression there. You started as a reporter, became the chief politics reporter. And then that actually, I'm curious about, I don't necessarily want to get deep into the downfall of newspapers, right? We can, a lot has been said about it. And I don't know that the dispatch's story, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is unique. Uh, advertising revenue goes down and you have to cut resources in order to continue making it a profitable business. Um, But talk about your transition from journalism to basically running the paper. Well, uh, I started in 1973 and like all new reporters, you got thrown into general assignment 
beats. You're covering mm-hmm. the tragedies of the day, the, the, the fires, the fatal crashes, the drownings, the, the, the police blotter stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I did that for a year, year and a half. And then the, the paper put me on what was called the development beat. Okay. Uh, the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission, CODA, rail, downtown development, freeway building. Uh, the, 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 the Route 315 expressway was being planned at that time. Uh-huh. The I-670 freeway was being planned at that time. Uh, and I was covering these things. I was covering the effort to keep Nationwide downtown, covering the effort to keep uh, Lazarus downtown, um, so downtown redevelopment. Uh, I think I did that job pretty well and by focusing on those sorts of urban redevelopment issues I then got assigned in 1977 to the City Hall beat. Okay. A big beat, arguably the most important beat at a newspaper. Um, and Mayor Tom Moody was in his second term, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the city was just busting. I mean, this was the, the early stages of the population explosion of Columbus mm-hmm. uh, compared to Cleveland, Cincinnati, the other big urban areas of Ohio. And I covered City Hall from 77 through 79, um, covering all these you know, neighborhood development issues. Um, and then uh, they like to put reporters through the steps. So after city hall coverage, I got sent to the county beat. Okay. And I covered Franklin County government uh, on the non-judicial side for a few years. And then they sent me to the state house. In 1982, at the tail end of Jim Rhodes' governorship, I was a, the chief legislative correspondent covering the House and Senate. Every day they were in session. Big policy issues. And I fell in love with it. My goal was to try to become Ohio's David Broder. I mean, I wanted to be sort of the recognized uh, top political reporter in the state. And there were lots of good ones, so I don't claim I ever got there, but the competition was was great. Mm-hmm. Newspapers were king, you know. The Internet didn't come along until 1995 right. you know, for, for most of us. And uh, so we made a big impact on our, on our joint coverage. And we you could, you could influence policymaking simply by your coverage, especially you know, deep uh, coverage, uh, putting issues in historical context. And after uh, I did that job at the State House for a while, the paper in uh, in uh, the mid-'80s named me chief politics writer. They called the public affairs desk. I was head of the public affairs editor, the chief of six reporters covering state government. Okay. And um, I did that from the mid-'80s until the early-'90s, and I was encouraged to move up the chain. I was encouraged by the front office to uh, to apply for promotions. I wasn't quite sure I wanted to do that because okay. I was in love with reporting. Yeah. And I wasn't sure I would love management. But long story short, in 1995, I was named editor. I was editor for four years through 1999 when they pulled me into the front office. They didn't ask me. John F. <laughs> John F. Wolf told me he was taking me into the front office. And why? Because he was a policy wonk himself. He loved uh, politics, government, and I think he appreciated the way I covered it. Um, and he trusted me. I mean, he clearly trusted me, which is why he pulled me into the front office, uh, named me associate publisher, and then later named me uh, president and chief operating officer uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then uh, vice chairman of the company, the dispatch printing company, and all that, that entails. So that just wasn't the, the dispatch. That was a chain of weekly newspapers. That was our broadcast operations, our TV and radio broadcast operations, and, and everything else. So he, he tried to make a businessman out of me. I'm not sure he was any very successful at doing that. Fair. But, uh, <laughs> but um, and I'll end with end my filibuster with this, Tim. Uh, not at all. You know, um, 
by the early 2000s, certainly by 2001, 2002, you didn't have to be a Phi Beta Kappa to see what the future of print journalism was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Internet had uh, destroyed the economic model for newspapers. Advertising went off the cliff. If you're a display advertiser with a huge inventory, why would you spend tens of thousands of dollars for full-page newspaper ads when you can put your entire inventory online at your company website, your store website? That's what happened. Mm-hmm. Um People discovered they could get information for free. Subscriptions started tanking. Um, so uh, over a period of several years, I sort of negotiated a diplomatic exit from the dispatch because I didn't see myself as being the pink slip guy mm-hmm. laying off my friends. I'm, I knew what had to happen. I knew that, that the shrinkage of the newsroom was going to be dramatic. I knew that the paper would be undergoing um, a very, very painful transformation to its next phase and I simply didn't want to be in charge of uh, reduction, reducing the forces of all my friends that I grew up with. And I wasn't, it wasn't driven all by altruism. I knew I had some pension money there to claim um, when I retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I retired from the front office as an executive at the end of 2007. But I structured a deal with John F. Wolf to for the next four years on contract as an independent contract mm-hmm. uh, with only one client, dispatch being my client run his editorial page, represent him in the community, sit on boards for him, be his eyes and ears in the community. And I did that for four years uh, from 2008 through 2011. Um, and everybody who's watching this understands what's happened in the newspapers in, mm-hmm. the, uh, in the interim. Um, and uh, we're moving to a totally online environment where news, newsrooms will be much smaller, but hopefully we'll still have them. And nonprofit newsrooms are growing up, as you know, yeah. uh, in this state and most states to try to fill the void of community public service journalism. Do you think that that's the, this is a, a an opinion question, do you think that that's the way to go? Do you think that that is the sustainable model that will allow for newsrooms to keep existing? I think the future of community journalism is the nonprofit model. Okay. Supported through philanthropy and memberships. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no real economic basis of support for community journalism anymore. Uh, I would love to be wrong. I would love to be proven wrong. But as we sit here, newspapers in America are dying at the rate of two per week. And news deserts continue to expand. Uh, These big companies like Gannett are over their head in debt. Yeah. well, and they're leveraged for a reason, but like that's a whole. Well, it, it's yeah. not like oh, poor Gannett. Well, that, that, that's right. <laughs> but they continue to slice and slice and slice and slice. It's clear that print print journalism is going away. It's an all online future, and uh, in that competition for attention, uh, it seems to me that the winners are going to be the nonprofits supported by their communities, mm-hmm. um, and quite. Frankly, a lot of volunteerism, mm-hmm. a lot of people who are willing to be um, not just stenographers, but reporters at very low rates as a civic service. Yeah. You know, as essentially like people work the polls for well, peanuts. I mean, welcome. I don't know that I've ever really disclosed it, but welcome to the Confluence cast <laughs> where I don't get paid. Yeah. Uh, this is, you know, for me, I'm interested, right? And you do it because it's important. Yeah. Exactly. Documenting things, right? And what has sort of become a theme recently is focusing on and realizing that there's not a whole lot of knowledge about the history of the city and sort of the uh, where we came from. 
Uh, I'm wondering if you have an opinion there on like why folks don't necessarily pay a whole lot of attention to where did we come from? Well, um, that is a great question. I wish I had a reasonable answer for you, but civics education seems to be at almost an all-time low, certainly mm-hmm. in my lifetime. I mean, um, and attention spans continue to shrink because everybody's addicted to, you know, their mm-hmm. uh, their handheld computers. Um, the studies that are done by Pew Research and uh, information scientists, you know, show that, you know, people are accessing more information than ever. Yeah. Um, I saw one study within the past year where uh, some information scientists were saying that the average American ingests over 100,000 words per day. Uh, high school and college teachers will tell you that it's almost impossible to get students to read long form mm-hmm. things like novels like Charles Dickens and uh, Mark Twain and all that, you know, because the, the information overload. Uh, this staccato yeah. ing- ingestion of news rewires the brain. I guess it changes the brain. And I guess I have a perception, and frankly, a frustration that it almost seems like that is more acute here in Columbus, specifically, of not being aware of major news stories, not being aware of uh, histories of places, as you've talked about regarding Franklinton. And I don't know if you see that as much or if uh, that hasn't been your experience. Well, it's an interesting story why I develop such an appreciation for history and historical context. When I joined the paper in 1973, it was the evening newspaper. Mm -hmm. The Columbus Citizen Journal was the morning newspaper. Right. The Columbus Evening Dispatch had always been an evening newspaper, okay, since its inception. and when I joined the paper in 1973, our absolute deadline was 10.30 in the morning. Well, nothing in government happens before 10.30 in the morning. <laughs> okay, so if you're the city hall reporter for the dispatch, which I was for mm-hmm. several years, and knowing that nothing breaks on your time, all news is breaking on the competitor's time. Right. Jerry Kondo at the Columbus Citizen Journal, who was a marvelous city hall reporter for them, everything broke on his time. So I was never going to compete with Jerry Kondo in the Citizen Journal on the basis of immediacy, on the basis of bringing you the first uh, news. Very, very rarely. Okay. But, but, what I, but what I could do, and I'm not Phi Beta Kappa, I'm a tortoise, but it dawned on me that if I was going to have a competitive edge against Jerry Kondo and the CJ, which was a small newspaper, mm-hmm. with not nearly a news hole of the dispatch, a big, fat newspaper. Mm-hmm. But what I could do is take a current issue and do my best to put it in historical context. He couldn't do that. He didn't have the news hole to do that. So when it came to freeway building, or when it came to municipal income taxation, or when it came to an energy project like the trash-burning power plant that Mm-hmm. That famously became the cash burning power plant under Tom Moody. Okay. When it when it when it came time to these important civic issues that, that came out of City Hall, what I could do is talk about this freeway building project in the context of freeway development mm-hmm. in our community. That's where a lot of that came from in that Franklinton talk. Mm-hmm. Was uh, Franklinton was impacted as much as any neighborhood by freeway building at the start. 
Um, and so I tried as much as I could during my time at the dispatch, whether I had the city hall beat, the county beat, the state government beat, to take these issues and to write them in a manner where I would, could try to explain to readers how this evolved, where this came from, mm-hmm. to give them some historical context and appreciation. Um, and I like to think I did that successfully, and that's what led me to do three editions of the Ohio Politics Almanac, mm-hmm. which was an attempt to take the story of Ohio, its General Assembly, its Constitution, its judiciary, the development of its cities and counties, and put each one of those in a chapter okay. to, to describe the political and societal evolution of of Ohio and its political subdivisions. So I'm, I'm filibustering here uh, Not an answer to your, to your question, but you, you really wanted to focus on how do we sort of rebuild a desire among our people, our voters, you know, for understanding the, the context, you know, the, here we are with facing state issues one and two mm-hmm. in this November's election on abortion and on marijuana. Well, there's marvelous historical context for both those issues. You know, uh, the, the, the sea change in public attitudes toward marijuana. Mm-hmm. Gallup, which has pulled on every subject under the sun since the 1940s, right. for the very first time pulled on the legalization of marijuana in 1969. Okay. In 1969, they asked a national sample whether marijuana ought to be legal or not. 84% no, 12% yes, the remainder undecided. 84% no in 1969, my senior year in high school. Uh, I would have thought it would be a little bit lower than 84% no. <laughs> but um, fast forward to today, November 7th of 2023, 20, uh, we're voting on legalization of, of recreational marijuana in Ohio. And it's almost the reverse now. Yeah, solid, solid majority of people believe that marijuana should be legalized for recreational purposes, which is why that issue is probably going to pass. Yeah, uh, by the time this thing airs, we'll probably know if I was right or wrong. But um, when you combine the decriminalization of marijuana uh, under, G- under Governor Jim Rhodes and then the legalization of medicinal marijuana a few years ago, mm-hmm. and now voting on recreational marijuana, it's clear in what the trend lines are in terms of acceptance of that. Yeah, but. But understanding that and, and, and teaching that is important because you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you came from. Yeah. And so I think describing these these trends, whether it be on abortion or marijuana or any public policy issue, is very important. And that's what I tried to devote my career to. Well, and I had the opportunity to hear you talk about the uh, constitutional amendment around the 60 percent threshold for changing the state constitution and your ability to... You, you did reference, this is why they're doing it, mm-hmm. but your core issue was not, hey, we need to make sure abortion gets passed. Right. Your core issue was, this is wrong. Yeah. This is the reason why there's a 50% threshold is f- from back when that threshold was put in place, people were corrupt and there was a problem. In 1912, when Ohioans adopted the, uh, the statutory initiative and mm-hmm. the constitutional initiative, we had one of the most corrupt state houses in the nation. The constitutional uh, amendment process, by giving the people the power to to circulate petitions, gather signatures, mm-hmm. and put an issue on the ballot to change their amendment, was a was a cleansing, uh, a great cleansing moment 
in Ohio political history. It helped clean up a corrupt state house. And what I was so appalled by, and the reason I threw myself into that campaign, is because they were selling it on a false premise. Yeah. Ohioans had not abused that right. If you look at the history from 1913, the first year they could exercise it, to the present day, they had only approved uh, about one-fourth of all the initiated amendments to come before them. And what I asked my opponents in debate was, okay, you can take casinos, I can give you casinos perhaps, Yeah. but choose any one of those other 18. Of those 19 amendments approved through the citizen initiative process since 1913, which one of the other 18 would you take out of the Constitution? Which one did the voters get wrong? Couldn't name one, because the voters had been judicious. They have yeah. been wise. They've used that power uh, very um, discriminately. And that's, you know, that history, teaching that history in the course of that campaign was very important. Do you have observations about how you think the state house is running now? Like, you obviously don't think that that was a good idea to put that forward. There were motivations there, and that's why it was done. But do you do you have broader observations for the state of things at the state house? Well, political supermajorities are not a good thing, mm-hmm. whether it's a Democratic supermajority or a Republican supermajority. When you have that kind of power, bad things tend to happen. When you have split control of government, you you have um, uh, an imperative to seek moderation, to seek compromise, to 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 find the middle ground. Uh, which usually leads to better public policy than ideologically driven mm-hmm. uh, policy of the left or the right. So if I had a magic wand, I would create a couple of Republican members of Columbus City Council because mm-hmm. I don't think an all-Democratic city hall serves any city well any more than an all-Republican council does. Right now at the state house, we have uh, supermajorities in both chambers for the first time in the modern era. We've never had before since we went to single-member districts in 1967 because of one— I'm sorry, what does that mean? Well, in in the 1960s, the the federal courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, issued a series of rulings saying that you must apportion your legislature on a basis of population only. Okay. And and before that, before that, we had every county in Ohio was guaranteed at least one state representative. Okay. So all 88 counties were guaranteed at least one state rep. That was the old Hanna Amendment of 1903. Okay. What's that give you? It gave us what was called a cornstalk brigade, you know, where the rulers were going to run everything. And, and, and urban areas were underrepresented because, you know, their populations, mm-hmm. you know, weren't being reflected in the way districts were drawn. So in the 60s, and this culminated in 1967, all state legislatures in the country under federal Supreme mm-hmm. Court order were required to draw districts on the basis of a one-person, one-vote. And that's what you mean by single-member? Single-member districts. Yeah, one-person, one-vote districts. Um, Well, so that was ushered in in Ohio in 1967. Since 1967, never in our state history until today Mm -hmm. has one party had a supermajority control of both chambers. What do I mean by supermajority? A two-thirds majority. Right. Okay. They can get anything through. They can do anything they want. Okay, in fact, Senate President Huffman has said that yeah. publicly. He said, we can pretty much do anything we want. That's not a good thing. And I'd be saying the same thing if it were the other party. Yeah. And I'd say this to Mayor Ginther, who I respect. I think Mayor Ginther, you know, has done a lot of good. Um, but we shouldn't have any of our core 
uh, public entities, in my view, run by one party, especially with a supermajority, mm-hmm. because then they don't have to be cognizant of dissenting viewpoints. And, um, you know, the loyal opposition has always been important yeah. in our country at every level. And so I hope to live long enough um, uh, this week as I turn 72. I hope to live long enough not only to see my grandkids grow up, but to see some moderation. Uh-huh. And as you know, our politics today at almost every level is is marked by polarization, uber-partisanship, ideologically driven agendas, regardless of what the science says, regardless of what the evidence says, that this country didn't become what it is by rejecting science and rejecting evidence, whatever the issue is. And now, and this, of course, was uh, the poster child for this, of course, was Donald Trump mm-hmm. in his four years of his presidency, where evidence didn't matter, truth didn't matter, we have to break this fever in our country at some point, and hopefully, and we all have to contribute to breaking that fever. Well, and it's a bit of a testament to you, and you can please correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, John Wolf is a Republican, like was a Republican, and you and he and he entrusted you to lead uh, the basically the voice of his newspaper as a Democrat. He didn't know I was a Democrat, though, Okay. Uh, because uh, when I joined the dispatch and I realized I was going to be covering political issues, uh, you know, I was going to be covering politics. You keep your hat over that. I, I well, I, uh, I had been born into an Irish Catholic Democratic family. Mm-hmm. John F. Kennedy was, you know, the guy yeah. in our family when I was in grade school. Uh, well, I knew when I joined the dispatch if I was going to be covering politics, I, I couldn't be identified with one party or another. So I didn't vote in primaries. And by not voting in primaries, I wasn't... Can't get looked up, right? You can't... Well, you don't have a party label assigned to you. Right. Because the way that you choose a, your party affiliation, as you know, in Ohio, is to vote in a primary. Right. You're going to vote in the Democratic primary, the Republican primary, or the Green primary, whatever. And so I, I, I parked that. I parked that, and I did not vote in a partisan primary for my career at the dispatch. And so John never looked it up. Mm-hmm. Had he looked up my career, he would have seen that, you know, back in my senior year in high school and freshman year in college, I was voting D. But by the time I was a reporter, I was not voting D or R anymore. I was just voting in general elections. So, and this will sound self-serving, so forgive me, but John F. Wolf and the Wolf family, of course, was very, very good to me. Mm-hmm. And John paid me some compliments, probably more than I deserved. But one compliment I will always hold on to is uh, when I called him up to let him know I was going to run for the legislature. Um, you know, I, I made that phone call to him in December of 2011. And I said, John, I'm going to, I'm going to run for the legislature in 2012 because a, a house seat has opened up. He goes, well, Mike, I have one question for you. And I said, well, what's that? And he goes, as a Democrat or as a Republican? And I said, well, John, thank you very much. I, I, uh, I treasure that comment because I, that's how I tried to conduct myself as a journalist and as a newsroom leader, mm-hmm. no one should know what your politics are. You know, if you're doing the job well, both people of all parties should feel they were given a fair break. And that they, now, of course, the editorial page was was clearly Republican for all those years. Yes. And a lot of people, when I did come out and come out and uh, run as a Democrat for the legislature, were, were rather surprised. Yeah. I figured, how this guy, how this Democrat. <laughs> Become the number two guy at the dispatch. Right. Well, it's because during my career, I did my best not to conduct myself as a D or an R or anything else, but as Sergeant Joe Friday, just a facts, ma'am. And 
not write ideological pieces or editorials or columns with a point of view, but historical pieces. Mm-hmm. So when I wrote income tax, that when when then the city of Columbus um, uh, put a measure on the ballot to increase the city income tax from 1.5 to 2 percent, I put that in the context of where did municipal income tax come from? Because most cities and most states don't allow municipal income taxation. Mm-hmm. You know, Columbus, uh, Ohio is one of the few states that does allow municipal income taxation. But that's interesting. Where'd that come from? Well, Philadelphia was the first state, I'm mean, the first city uh, in 1947 to enact a municipal income tax because the Pennsylvania legislature allowed that. Hmm. Well, uh, Ohio, in 1912, passed an amendment allowing municipal income taxation because we were growing up as a very urbanized, industrial uh, state at that time. You know, mm-hmm. Toledo and Cleveland and Youngstown and Canton and Akron and Cincinnati, I and mean, we were all developing these big industries. Um, and um, the thought was that uh, at that time, the property tax was the bulwark of, of, of taxation in the state. And these farmers and these rural areas, they thought, well, as, as we grow up with more and more population and, and more and more demands for civic services, you know, we don't want that property tax continuing to go up. Right. And so there was a consensus to allow municipal income taxation in this state. And after uh, Toledo became the first city in the state to adopt a municipal income tax in 1947, and then Ohio or Columbus followed suit the following year. And so what I tried to do when I was writing this income tax stories, here's where income tax, municipal income tax action came from. Mm-hmm. And to, to be a balance with property taxes and sales taxes, so you have um, a number of sources to support all these services out there, and you're not over-reliant on property or sales or excise or any other type of taxation. And teaching those lessons, first of all, you teach them to yourself. Right. Because I didn't know the, those answers. So, as you know, as a journalist, you teach yourself first, and then you write a piece that hopefully teaches others. And um, provides that context. And provides that context so that they can judge, oh, that's the reason that, uh, that Ohio is structured the way it is. And that's where that idea of municipal income taxation came from. And, and so when I wrote, whether it was about urban redevelopment issues, whether we should tear down the old ballpark on Mound Street that I loved as Jet Stadium growing up, mm-hmm. pre- previously Red Bird Stadium, then Cooper Stadium. The city fathers wanted to bring baseball downtown, as you know, as part of the arena develop- district right. development. And I had mixed emotions about that, having my heart at old Jet Stadium on Mound Street. So I did a big, long piece for the dispatch on the evolution of baseball in Columbus, you know, and the different venues for it. Uh, over the decades, going back to old Neal Park on Neal Avenue, mm-hmm. you know, which was a predecessor to Redbird Stadium. And um, I found back in the day when newspapers were king, I found that people appreciated that kind of cultural, societal, and historical context. Can you talk about your other work? Uh, I know you do a lot of work in uh, board service. A lot of even on your old archived campaign site, one of the top navigation items is contribute to nonprofits. Um, what are you currently working on? Well, I'm on five boards, uh, several of which are are very time consuming boards. Uh, I'm on the Ohio Expo Center board, for example. Governor okay. Dewine appointed me to the Ohio Expo Center. 
uh, the Ohio Expo Commission Board, we are undergoing a master plan for uh, reinventing the entire fairgrounds. Okay. Uh, those the, the Ohio State Fair has been on that location since the 1880s. A lot of those buildings reflect that. And um, that's a 360-acre tract up there. And Governor DeWine is one of his signature accomplishments that he wants to leave office with is a uh, reinvigorated fairgrounds, expo grounds. So I'm on the board of the expo commission. I, he also named me to, to be co-chair of what's called the Ohio Expo 2050 Task Force. Okay. 2050 for a reason. Um, and so I'm working with a lot of people uh, on um, reinventing the state fairgrounds. And over the next several years, people will see, I think, a pretty impressive reinvention of those grounds to bring it into the modern era and uh, make it more than what it is now. It's already pretty good Expo Center grounds, but mm -hmm. uh, I'm doing that. I'm on, the, I'm on the Ohio Air Quality Development Authority Board, which does what you'd expect it to do. We help business and industry meet federal clean air standards, um, <clears throat> not by giving them, giving them uh, grants, but helping them uh, use the state's borrowing authority to get low cost um, financing for clean air projects. I'm on the Mount Carmel Foundation Board. Mount Carmel speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. um, having grown up Catholic, I've had an affinity for Catholic health care, uh, mission-driven health care. Uh, the other two boards I'm on are the Columbus International Visitors Council. The IVC is the officially designated um, organization by the U.S. State Department to host um, visiting delegations from countries all over the world who come to Columbus for a reason to study what we do and how we do it. Okay. Uh, and then I'm also on the board of the Washington Gladden Social Justice Park uh, at the corner of Cleveland and Broad Street um, in honor of Washington Gladden, one of Columbus's most notable um, visionaries and a leader in the progressive movement of the late 1800s, early 1900s, brought a lot of reforms to, uh, to Columbus. So, uh, I'm on those boards, but then every year brings something, mm -hmm. some challenge, some issue like the 60% issue in August that you just have to become a warrior on. So you never know what it, what it, a different year is going to bring, but every year is going to bring something that's going to involve me as long as I'm upright and give me a reason to get out of bed in the morning. That's fair. And then what is Signal Ohio? Signal Ohio is a nonprofit news startup. Oh, okay. Started in Cleveland one year ago uh, with a lot of uh, seed money from the Cleveland Foundation and other foundations in Northeastern Ohio. Uh, uh, they are covering Cleveland City Hall. They're covering the Cleveland Board of Education. They're covering all the, the usual beats you would expect a newsroom to cover. Um, uh, they're online as uh, Signal Ohio. They are just opening up Signal Akron. Okay. They hope to come to Columbus and open up Signal Columbus within the next year or so. Um, they seek foundation money, and down the road they'll be seeking membership money, just like public radio, public TV mm -hmm. seeks memberships to support old-fashioned uh, community journalism, uh, the, the stuff we need to be informed voters. Um, and I, I think Signal Ohio is one among hopefully a plethora of nonprofit newsrooms that fill gaps and uh, and they're they're developing a team of people called documenters. Okay. You use the word, you know, earlier in this discussion. What are documenters? They're essentially low paid. If you're paid, you're not a volunteer, but they're a couple low paid volunteers like poll workers. Yeah. Nobody does 
works the polls for money, but you do get your 80 bucks or 100 bucks, whatever right. it is. Well, Signal Ohio is developing a team of what they call documenters to go out and cover their boards of township trustees and their boards of education and their village halls and so forth to, to report on what's going on out here that people need to be aware of and also to engage with everyday citizens to ask them, what do you want covered mm-hmm. that you don't think is being adequately covered in your community? Whether it's a library levy, or whether it's uh, you know the fight at the board of education over gendered bathrooms, or, uh, you name it. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in this age, where so much is being driven by razor sharp ideologies, um, there's a lot of interest out there. And I, I do compare documenters to, to poll workers because you do it because you understand the importance of the function. And journalism is important day in day out as elections are twice a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I hope to see this nonprofit model develop in a way that um, foundations, philanthropists, uh, every, every, everyday citizens want to help crowdsource through memberships, um, like what you do, mm-hmm. quite frankly. I mean, this is, what you do is invaluable stuff, and um, we need more and more and more of it. Well, thank you. I end every interview with the same two questions. What is Columbus doing well and what is Columbus not doing so well? Well, what Columbus is doing well, I think, is trying to be inclusive. And I can say this with some historical context. Uh, it used to be the same three or four white guys that ran everything. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's good and bad. It's good because it gets things done. <laughs> you don't have to have a, a big plebiscite right. to set the agenda. And so, but compared to what the Columbus I grew up in, I mean, we have this messy process now for how we form uh, priorities. What are we going to do in this town? It's, you know, it's a tale of two cities. It's a lot messier. It's a lot less, uh, it's a lot um, less efficient mm-hmm. than three or four guys in a boardroom making a decision. But um, the decisions are made today for the most part, by people elected to make those decisions and mm-hmm. not, not by four guys in a boardroom somewhere telling those guys what the agenda is going to be. And that's a good thing. It's a messy thing, but it's, but it's a good thing. I think we're doing democracy pretty well, although, as I said earlier, I wish we had two parties represented mm-hmm. everywhere as opposed to just one party at City Hall and one party at the State House. Mm-hmm. What we're not doing so well is what so many urban areas are not doing so well, and that is um, public safety. You know, public safety has uh, become a bigger and bigger sore, a bigger and bigger problem um, for reasons that are very complex. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take the village, so to speak. It's going to take all of us doing something to pitch in to, you know, um, get that trend line going back in the other direction. And it's got to start, of course, at the youngest age as possible. And to the mayor's credit, uh, to Bishop Fernandez's credit, to the credit of a lot of people, um, a lot of leaders now are figuring out how do we combine resources, you know, to um, make sure we occupy kids from the youngest ages doing productive things, mm-hmm. using our playgrounds more productively, you know, our gyms, our um, are our places of public assembly to get kids into productive areas. Reinventing the, uh, bringing back the uh, police athletic league, mm. which was very vibrant back in the seventies. You know, it fell off the map some years ago. Mayor Ginther was bringing back the Police Athletic League. Why? To have cops running athletic programs for kids and kids to get to know cops in some um, 
uh, arena other than a non-confrontational a non-confrontational right. not not the cruiser not the uniform but learning basketball learning soccer learning boxing uh these sorts of things it's going to take a, a, to george H.W. Bush's credit, I think it was H.W. Bush, who, the Thousand Points of Light program. Mm-hmm. Um, sounds hokey, it wasn't. I mean, the Thousand Still Points... Still a foundation, yeah. Thousand Points of Light was about building, empowering these nonprofits everywhere to do the Lord's work, you know, uh, where the need is, is greatest. And, uh, you know, that, that's work that's evergreen. That's work we all have to be in, you know, every day of our lives. Mike, thanks for your time. Great being with you, Tim. Thanks for the, thanks for the uh, opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite author. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. Our producer is Philip Cogley. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week.